are listening to Prime Venture Partner podcast where we bring you impactful moments from the lives of entrepreneurs, new CXOs and investors who are playing a key role in building digital India. Good day everyone. This is Amit Somani from Prime Venture Partners. I'm delighted to have with me today Paras Chopra, founder and chairman of Wingify. Welcome to the show Paras. Thanks, Amit. Glad to be here. Paras, I remember meeting you about 10, maybe 11 years ago back in Gurgaon when you were just about starting Wingify. And I actually remember being a user of the product, you know, visual website optimizer at Make My Trip. So I'd love for you to start with a little bit of the starting up story, you know, because I know you had a mental model of how you thought of starting up, perhaps how you found the idea. And as we go along, we'll explore how you recommend people go about finding interesting ideas to work on. So why don't you tell us the story of Wingify as well as a little bit about your early journey? Sure. So this actually goes back to quite a long back. Uh, It's a typical story, right? When there is a new computer at home, some people get hooked to games, other like me get hooked to programming. And that's what I did for a long period of time. So I got a computer when I was 11 or 12 and throughout my high school, I coded and programmed a lot and by the virtue of that you know I also got exposed to the startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley through books like Founders at Work. So as I read more and more about that you know I realized that uh, people or founders of Google and Yahoo just using their laptops and you know coding they were able to create really big companies and uh, at that point of time you know the notion of big companies was all about it's factories and steel and Tata's and Birla's and so on. So this notion of anyone with a laptop can make a company really struck quite close to my heart. And after that, in my college, uh, I tried to do a number of startups creating different projects uh, here and there, but none of them really worked. And uh, as I started reflecting on why my startup projects were not working, the realization was that uh, I was an engineer building a lot of stuff but not doing a good job in getting users and customers onto it. So that was my push to learn more about marketing. And uh, finally, as I started learning more about marketing, I fell in love with the subject. And I thought for my fourth startup attempt, let me create something to do with marketing. And broadly, that's where I started. And Visual Web Optimizer, like you're saying, uh, that was one of the first visual A-B testing tools which let you optimize your landing pages and websites. And um, and yeah, my initial goal was, you know, very humble because this was the fourth time I was trying something. And in this time, I just wanted to make an equivalent amount of money as I was getting in my salary, which was 50,000 rupees back then. So my sense was that, you know, if I get this amount of money, I'm good. And I would have proven to myself that I can be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. The other interesting thing I recollect, and and this is obviously now a little bit of folklore through your last 10 years, is that you wanted to kind of bootstrap it, right? So you took this notion of earning your own salary and then that of the next set of engineers and so forth. So can you talk about both the, not just the historical choice of sort of bootstrapping, but as you look at it now, 10 years later, would you kind of still do it again? What was really good about it? What were things that perhaps if you had been open to taking capital, what would have been different, if anything? Sure. I think with the benefit of this 10-year hindsight and experience, I would say this differentiation between bootstrapped and 
uh, venture capital. I think that's a false differentiation. Ultimately, if you go back to the core reason of why you are doing a startup, why you're building something new, I think that ultimately uh, is for most entrepreneurs related to this joy of creating something and less to do with uh, you know the money or financial upside that comes with it. So I think this question between bootstrapped and VC blows out of proportion if an entrepreneur or the startup community in general is motivated more by the status that comes with say raising X amount of money or with the eventual financial upside that comes with small chance of making a really big company, which is actually what VC startups are all about. But if you are motivated by building interesting things, then whether to take funding or not funding is really contingent on the question whether such funding can really help you in achieving you know, your goal of building something. For me, I was a programmer and I was building things by myself. So I never was able to give a good answer to myself of why I would need funding because I would create stuff. I would build my own website. I would take demos. I would write articles. I was doing everything by my own and I was enjoying it a lot. So whenever a VC would approach me and say, hey, take this money, I honestly didn't know what would I do with the money because I was already having a lot of fun doing what I was doing. Sounds great. Let me delve a little bit into still the early journey of picking new ideas and also the title of your blog, Inverted Passion. Maybe for our listeners, you can talk a little bit about what Inverted Passion is. I know that Paul Graham from Y Combinator, he has this famous thing saying, you know, build something that, you know, people want. But I'd I'd love to know what Inverted Passion means to you and, you know, how do you recommend people pick interesting ideas to work on? Sure. So like you said, you know, the blog is invertedpassion.com and uh, I started it during my sabbatical uh, wherein I reflected upon my 10 years of journey as an entrepreneur and throughout that journey, uh, VW obviously worked out and it grew our company to where it is today. Uh, But there were many other product attempts that uh, I was involved with, which didn't work out. So I I wanted to reflect deeply on why some of the things I worked on worked while others didn't and uh, actually concretize that understanding rather than just having that very vague gut feeling. And as I reflected more, I realized that uh, one of the major issues that many entrepreneurs I interacted with, and especially that was true for me in variety of contexts, was this whole thing about passion. It's a very tricky thing. I believe passion is really like a, uh, an edge of the sword, which is it can go both ways. It's definitely required to do anything interesting, but uh, a lot of time passion leads us to building things that only the builder really wants. And that was certainly you know my own experience when I was building initial things. So the whole point of inverted passion and what I recommend entrepreneurs now on getting good ideas, I mean, instead of becoming passionate about an idea and spending your uh, weeks and months into building it, one should be passionate about discovering what other people are passionate about. And I know it sounds complicated, but the idea is really simple that rather than falling in love with a particular idea and spending a lot of time, because that comes with tons of cognitive biases. And you'll discover too late that nobody else wants. So rather, one should be passionate about this meta level of activity, which is finding what other people are passionate about. If other people are passionate about XYZ and you're able to provide a really great solution for that XYZ, 
then you're done. And that's why it's called inverted passion that you need to, you know, invert your passion towards just discovering what others are passionate about and not what you are passionate about. Yeah. So that, that sounds great. Um, and I, I saw this uh, infographic from your blog, right? Which says in addition to these two conditions, right? What are you capable of? What are others passionate about? Also do a little bit of homework on what the world is not working on. Therefore, in fact, even at Prime Ventures, we believe in this notion of sort of blue ocean or white spaces or whatever. So how do you do that, right? And I would even argue that uh, visual website optimizer, while from a visual sense was uh, novel and different, but A-B testing had been around for donkey years, right? So how do you figure out what the world is not working on? It seems like everybody's working on everything. Yeah, so I think one key thing to understand is that uh, human drives and human wants, they do not change or change very, very slowly. I think people were A-B testing even before computers came along in a variety of different contexts. So, And people were sending uh, sales communication even before emails were invented and so on. So these basic drives of humans that also manifest in basic drives of businesses in B2B context, I think they change very, very slowly or they change not at all. Uh, what changes is uh, solutions to them and approaches to them. And uh, you're right in the observation that, for example, A-B testing was there for a long time. But why Visual Website Optimizer succeeded was because it actually improved approach to A-B testing in a considerable way. And when I say considerable way, the solutions can obviously be optimized in a variety of dimensions, say cost as a dimension, efficiency as a dimension, ease of use as a dimension. So an entrepreneur who's working on a problem, which is most likely a lot of other entrepreneurs are also working on. But if that entrepreneur solution is say 2x or 3x better than anything else out there, the entrepreneur can rest assured that the solution will catch a good amount of attention. In fact, I do believe that uh, this whole thing about my solution is unique or you know I don't have competitors that uh, many entrepreneurs uh, like to sort of push out as a positive is actually a negative. If there is no competition, this can very well mean that the problem you're solving for doesn't exist or is not a high priority. So absolutely see presence of competition as a very positive signal. But uh, of course, getting and delivering like a me too solution doesn't cut it. Uh, you have to have your solution good on some dimension as compared to a previous solution. And again, you know, the comparison and when we talk about competition, usually it's not just a very obvious competition. For example, think about when Flipkart started their thing in India. Uh, you could argue that they were one of the first e-commerce folks and they had no competition. But you have to then understand from customer's perspective that the competition was not e-commerce. The competition was people going to stores and buying stuff because the problem that they were solving was for people buying stuff, right? And the solution was e-commerce, which was new in India. And it was significantly better than going out, traveling for half an hour to a shop and buying. So just because they innovated on the solution and made it 2x, 3x better as compared to their existing alternative, which was offline buying, they were able to succeed a lot. But the second and third competitors that came along, the reference point for customers was then Flipkart and not going out. So they had to improve in some other dimension. Uh, and many of them were not able to, and that's why they didn't succeed. We also talk about, you know, again, talking from a prime point of view, about you need to be 10x better, and it could be on any one dimension. It's not like there is nobody that exists. You could have a differentiated product, like you said, 
you could have a differentiated business model you could have a differentiated go to market strategy maybe more organic acquisition whatever but in some way you need to you know have differentiation and eventually sort of hopefully some defensibility as well so switching gears paras right let's talk about building of the company and building of the team as very excited to to explore that right so can you talk about maybe some of the you know not just the early hiring but somewhere along the mid of the journey and as we get to now you know last few years you did you been chairman just the building of the team and and managing that from being an engineer uh, you know product turned entrepreneur sure so it's been 10 years since i started the company and uh, early years say you know the first 5 years were really me learning how to be a manager how to be an entrepreneur how to be a leader how to be a ceo all at once there's obviously no course or university that prepares you to build a company so i've made uh, many mistakes along the way but at the same time you know i think i've had the privilege of not working extensively in the so called corporate world so i think i worked for one and a half years or so before starting wingify uh, and that's why a lot of decisions that we ended up taking in wingify we did them from first principles rather than just borrowing the best practices from outside and that's why for a long time for example we didn't have uh, things like you know dress code office timings we didn't have fixed leaves people could come in uh, whenever they feel like you know not working they could just say i don't like to work and so on so a lot of things were innovated uh, from first principles uh, that way as far as hiring is concerned i think hiring is one of the in fact probably it's the most underrated skill that an entrepreneur needs to develop and uh, initial hiring is always from you know one's network maybe college or maybe ex companies or maybe people you generally know but after that initial pool has been plucked then you come to the real deal of hiring people that uh, do not come from any references but they are cold emails or applications on your portal and judging then is is really difficult at least it was for me very difficult because i came from that engineering mindset wherein you know you have a conversation and you take what people are saying on face value and uh, if you do that you will end up making a lot of mistakes because people put up their best face forward in an interview so made a fair share of mistakes but slowly and gradually you know over the last 10 years then have realized how important hiring is and right now the way we hire is really to imagine and that's how i'll also recommend if i can go back in time to myself is to rather than hiring for roles and labels for example hiring for a marketing head is very ambiguous and entrepreneurs do it because they see a lot of other startups hire for these roles be it vp marketing be it marketing head or be it even you know hr or recruitments all these are labels so instead of hiring for these labels you need to hire for specific skill sets that are going to bring a substantial amount of change in the business in next 12 to 18 months what this means is that you need to understand your business so well that you can visualize that this person which is like an idealistic person right now if they join and they do a really great job my business will go from x to y so what's needed in that x to y whether you call such a person vp of sales whether you call it sales strategies or whether you call just ninja or anything else doesn't really matter so interviewing for those skills that take you from x to y is much more important than hiring for a label and that's how you know i've 
built the company wherein we've always hired depending on what gaps in the company are rather than just hiring for abstract titles and then figuring out where to fit in those titles. Paras, can you talk about a couple of specifics? Obviously, no names or whatever, but just the kind of mistakes just from a learning and education point of view that, that one has made. And more importantly, the process that you have used to get better. Yes, let's say even if I'm clear that I'm hiring for a certain set of skill gaps or uh, needs in the organization, how do you go about it? Has anything changed there in your learning as you've gone along? Yes, significantly. I mean, I'll obviously not take names, but just take an example. And again, it's a hypothetical example, but take this whole idea of hiring like a marketing head for the company. Now, when you push out a JD or like a role of marketing head, maybe you put out on some hiring portals, maybe you get a consultant to help you with, or maybe, you know, you sort of uh, circulate it on different portals. So if you do that, you'll get all sorts of profiles with their own interpretation of what a marketing head is. And I believe that companies are so highly sort of uh, contextual that what works in one company doesn't necessarily work in another company at all. So when we had put out, for example, you know, marketing head profile, we got applications from very impressive profiles, people who have done really big things at very impressive companies. But then it loses all the context in terms of whether they did it themselves or not. Even something as simple as if your company is selling a product at uh, $10 per month, but you get CV from someone from, for example, Pepsi, you know, it might sound very impressive, but the context is so different that uh, the person will not be successful uh, in the company. And it's not the person's fault. It's not the company's fault. It's just a very big misfit. So what we do right now is A, we focus very much on making sure our hiring is as personalized to the company as possible. And then by, by that, you know, I mean, instead of just taking an open-ended interview and focusing on the person's past, we focus on a real-world problem that Wingify has right now, which the person would be expected to solve if the person joins us. So we spend like a day or two with the person brainstorming on a current problem and see what quality of responses do we get from that person. So we heavily sort of discount the experience in favor of problem solving on a current problem that Wingify has. And similarly, even within that, we do not focus a lot on things which we feel are trainable. So a lot of context can be trained, but uh, many of the things, for example, on first principles thinking or a person's reliance on analytics and data and so on, cannot be trained for. So focusing also on things that cannot be trained for is something uh, we've been doing now, which we weren't doing earlier. I think the nutshell is that it's easy to get starstruck by really great profiles, but the objective of hiring is not to hire impressive people. The objective of hiring is to solve specific problems in your business. And that requires a great deal of personalization in the interview process. Just one quick follow-up on that, right? So let's say you have a certain set of skills gap, need gap, requirements in the company now. And you said you look for a 12 to 18 month kind of horizon. But, you know, many of these people, you need them to be around for, you know, four or five, maybe even 10 years, right? Later. How do you look for long-term sort of fitment as well as uh, scalability of the individual? I think you expect people to grow as well. Uh, and it's it's a fair expectation because we all have finite lives. 
so you cannot hire someone who is guaranteed to be really good rest of their life but we do feel if someone comes along and they help grow the company in next like one and a half to three years after that you know if their paths are not super aligned with us or they are not able to scale to our expectations or we are not able to scale to their expectation i think it's totally fine to sort of part ways then but i mean i, I don't think you can hire with an expectation that someone would stick with you for 10 years it's improbable and it's also okay if you do your next 18 months job really really well i think that's a really good outcome great so let's switch gears again and talk about becoming a leader becoming a ceo and the most interesting one which is transitioning from a ceo to a chairman right which will involve some amount of letting go especially in your case since you're the first person to start this company so can you talk a little bit about that whole leadership journey and that entrepreneurship journey where you build this scale this become the ceo run it like you said hiring people building product to now taking a slight step back i don't say that you're not doing anything but maybe also you can talk about what the chairman role entails as far as you're concerned sure so i think it's a continuous process of letting go and uh, uh, it's not like one fine day you wake up and say now i need to let go or now i need to delegate and i think delegate is also a tricky word you can delegate but still be hyper obsessed about variety of different things so i think it's it's partly nature uh, wherein my nature is about new things and my nature is about learning and exploring and uh, that's why my working style from day one had been if there is someone else who can do job as well as i do or maybe even better i would just let go and let those people do the job if someone is uh, you know contemplating growing as a leader they have to start sort of a trusting people a little bit more than what you would usually do i think when, what we do when we interact with uh, uh, other people is we have this uh, mental model of really high standards what we don't realize is that we ourselves have made a ton of mistakes getting to the stage where we have those high standards and a good mental model so it's a very tricky balance of making sure that you do not lower your standards you keep your standards high but at the same time you also have empathy for other people to have that space to make mistakes and grow and come to that level so it does take time but uh, if that happens again and again you know you will realize that a lot of people who work with you eventually start doing the job uh, you know better than you and at that stage you get more and more bandwidth to do new and new things so at least for me you know my job as an entrepreneur is always to do new and new things and that's why i've continuously keep on giving more and more things for you know people and team around me to do and uh, that has culminated to me becoming a chairman uh, from the ceo and but i think that cannot happen unless you've had a significant history of leaders who've scaled up and were doing job as good if not better as you've been doing and as a chairman right now i think my focus is to really get involved in areas where i can specifically make a difference so these days i'm involved in uh, machine learning and marketing and a couple of other areas of course around corporate governance and all those things are there but specifically even functionally i have no privilege and bandwidth to really intervene at specific pinpoints and do a great job there rather than making sure everything is working okay because for that you know you have uh, your ceo and uh, the leadership team very insightful paras so i have a question which is that 
you know, there is a proactive sort of, you know, building trust, building leaders, letting go. And there could even be unfortunately a reactive one where you are not scaling up, but it is not sort of very obvious to you, or maybe you have attachment, right? And you're sort of clinging on to it, right? Uh, and, and not being able to let go. So what is a good framework for doing a self-assessment as you go along, right? Is it other board members, advisors, maybe your co-founders? How do you figure out that, hey, Paras, you're not cutting it in element X, as opposed to, I see this other person and they are great at marketing, so you should just let go and give them marketing. So for that, I think getting a coach helps. Uh, I did work with a coach and uh, the coach doesn't tell you anything that you don't know. But uh, we're usually so much stuck in our own thoughts that uh, sometimes it's hard to see the obvious. And I think the obvious truth for a lot of us is that uh, there are certain things that we enjoy in life doing and certain other things that we don't enjoy doing. So for me, it was a matter of reflecting on what I enjoyed the most and uh, what I actually did well the most and making sure I continuously am focusing there and not around things which you usually you know associate with doing just for the status or just for power and so on so for me doing say a startup was never about uh, uh, external glamour and so on so it was very easy for me to say that hey you know the reason i'm doing this is for creating new things and if as a ceo i'm not getting bandwidth to create new things i should probably not be a ceo and that's frankly the mental model i use so i would recommend uh, all entrepreneurs to do an introspection on uh, a very honest introspection on what they do well and what they don't do well and just continue to focus on what they do well while delegating a lot of other things. Thanks, Paras. So I know you write prolifically and I write a bit as well. And anyone who writes, I know will read a lot. So as we kind of wrap up here, love to know a little bit about your, you know, why you write any thoughts on that and maybe a few books of your uh, reading list now or books that have had a profound impact on you in the last uh, three, four years? I mean, I write because I think writing is thinking. Otherwise, you know, thoughts are so structured and haphazard that it's hard to really go deep into having an insight or even uh, having like good thoughts per se. So writing for me is really having, you know, long conversations with myself because you have thoughts out there on a paper or a document you can read them and see, you know, some of the thoughts are stupid and some of the thoughts are not stupid. Uh, without writing, it's just like a mush of everything your brain comes up with, with no filtration at all. So I find writing very much aligned to uh, helping me think. And in fact, I don't dif differentiate between these two activities at all. As far as books is concerned, it's a long list and I don't know where to start. If it comes to probably uh, startups, this book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One had a big impact on me in terms of helping me build uh, good mental models. Uh, when it comes to science, uh, uh, it's probably a book like The Selfish Gene again helped me look at the world in an entirely different way. And of course, my first uh, science book and the one I've read eight, nine times is The Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. It's absolutely a gem of a book. All three of those are absolutely wonderful recommendations. We'll ask you for a link for some other book recommendations from your blog or otherwise post this. So thank you so much, Paras. This has been really interesting. Lots of interesting insights from building companies, leaders, letting go and so forth. So thank you for being on the Prime Venture Partners podcast. Really great to have you here. Thanks, Amit. Thanks for having me.
listeners thank you so much for listening to this episode of prime venture partners podcast don't forget to subscribe to this show so that you can stay updated with great conversations like these you can share your feedback at our twitter handle at the rate prime vp underscore in or leave your review on apple podcast or wherever you listen to the show from 